Last year, we started a series on the book of John. No, just kidding. It, <coughs> it feels that way because we haven't been together in like uh, three, or we, well, we haven't done John in about three weeks, but we're going to jump back into John chapter one. So if you want to join me there and, and Lord willing, and, and by his grace, we're going to get through chapter one this morning. But if you recall, and, and if you don't, it's okay, we're, we're actually in the middle of a momentous week in the life of John the Baptist, in the life of Jesus, and in the life of others who will eventually become his disciples. We're right in the middle of this week. And the last time we, we saw John the Baptist, you know, chapter, John chapter 1, a lot of it's about John the Baptist and his identifying of Jesus Christ. But if you remember the, the excitement he must have had... Uh, Seeing Jesus walk toward him, if we, if we have our time frame right, this is following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, 40 days, recorded in Matthew 4, not recorded in John 1, and also following Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. That's in Matthew chapter 3. That's what prompted the Spirit to lead him out into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. But apparently after his time in the wilderness, John now knows who Jesus is. He knows his identification. And he sees Jesus walking, and we saw him identify Jesus twice. Verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. And so John, I think, lived the rest of his life with one finger out, always pointing at Jesus Christ. What a privilege to, to do that as your life's work. And this is exactly what... He's doing, well, at the end of that second time, that that next day where he pointed him out a second time, two disciples of John the Baptist heard him. And they said, in modern parlance, peace out, John, we're going with him. And and they made the right decision. This is exactly what they should have done. They were designed to leave John the Baptist and begin to follow Jesus Christ. And they hung out with Jesus that day. And what you're going to find all throughout the rest of this passage is when you hang out with Jesus, you start declaring him to others. When you hang out with Jesus, you start bringing him to others. You start bringing others to him. And we're going to see that play out in the rest of this chapter. And so far, we've seen the presentation of Jesus by John the Baptist. We've seen the presentation of Jesus to John the Baptist. Remember, God the Father designed a very special way to convince John the Baptist of who the Messiah was. It would be a man that he baptized in water whom the Spirit of God would descend in the form of a dove. And, and just in case he missed it, the dove would stay on him, would, would remain on him. And that only happened with one man, and that was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so he begins to declare him. And then we're going to see Jesus is presented to Andrew. And Jesus is then presented to Peter in this chapter, and then Jesus is presented to Philip, and then Jesus is presented to Nathaniel, and that'll close out our chapter. But you start seeing this presentation to Jesus' uh, disciples. And again, we're going to see lots of declarations in this chapter. In fact, it it seems like it didn't take too long to be around with Jesus Christ to be impressed with him. You're going to see these guys just screaming excitement about who Jesus is. And so we'll kind of look at that as we go. But let's look at uh, verse 40. Uh, and, and Andrew, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, there's two disciples of John the Baptist. They had just spent the day with Jesus. The other one's not named. Andrew's name, because the other one's not named, it's probably John the Apostle. 
He, he typically leaves himself out in terms of identifying himself all throughout the book. So it's probably John the Apostle, although we don't know. And, and quite frankly, how would you like to be identified by, by that someone else's brother? You know, here's Andrew. Oh, who's Andrew? Oh, that's Peter's brother. Oh, yeah, that guy. And, and he's kind of identified that way multiple times in this account. But Andrew, uh, it's probably his claim to fame, honestly, in terms of the biblical record, is he's someone else's brother is kind of how he comes up. But, you know, one of the things that we learn from history, we don't have it recorded in the book of Acts, because, again, who does the first 10 chapters of Acts follow? Andrew's brother, right? He's a superstar. Peter's the guy that gets all the attention. Andrew didn't get attention. But we know from history that Andrew probably ministered in Greece, probably Ephesus, and that he potentially reached southern Russia, maybe even the area of the Ukraine is where Andrew took his ministry at the time. We also know that he was crucified just like his brother and just like the Lord Jesus. But just like his brother, he said something at his crucifixion that is just mind-blowing. He said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. And we know Peter, history tells us, was crucified upside down. Because of that, they honored his request. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross, so he was kind of diagonal. They, didn't, they weren't crucified the same way Jesus was, and that was a request of his. But this is how Andrew's life ended up. Now, what's really interesting as we look at Andrew is note his heart response. And I'm going to make a big deal about that because this is all relational that we're going to see here. Everything's relational. It's, it's hang out with Jesus. It's follow Jesus. It's come see Jesus. It's all relationally oriented. And that's how salvation is designed to be. See, religion has screwed that up. Over the world, it's messed it up. It's made it about a cathedral. It's made it about a temple. It's made it about walking the aisle. It's made it about lighting candles. It's made it about human confession to human priests. It's made it about turning the, the communion table into live flesh and live blood. It's just, it is messed it up. It's relational. It's found in a person. And we're going to see that borne out all the way through. And you know, it's so interesting because you're going to notice in verse 43, we're going to get an interesting phrase, the following day. What does that tell us? That means the moment Andrew left Jesus, where does he go? He says, I got to tell my brother. I have to tell him because I love him and I want him to know that we have found the Messiah. And that's where this story is going to go. And in this way, Andrew is oftentimes referred to by commentators as the usher. And, and what do ushers do? They escort people and they bring them to their seat. But in this case, Andrew has this tendency to escort people to Jesus Christ. What a, what a great description. Oh yeah, what do you do at the church? I'm just the usher. I'm just, I'm just the guy that brings people to Jesus I got, you know, I may not have all the pretty arguments in the world. I may not have the slickest way of communication. I might not be able to uh, navigate my way in and out of superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism and all these deep theological things. But you know what you can do? You can bring people to Jesus. You can, you can say, come see. You can describe what Jesus has done for them and just usher people into the presence of the Savior. Andrew does that. In fact, we see in John 6, verses 8 through 9, it was Andrew who brought the young boy with the five loaves and the two small fish. And it was almost this hopeful thing like, well, G Jesus, I mean, all we got here is five loaves and two fish. And the implication is, 
if anyone can do something with this, it's you. And so he brings this young boy to Jesus. We see another story in John 12. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to the worship at the feast. They came to Philip. We're going to meet Philip in our account here in John 1 here in a second, probably a friend of Andrew. He was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and he asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And what did Andrew do? Andrew and Philip told Jesus. They, they wanted to bring these men to Jesus. So we see this constantly in the mind of Andrew. I just got to get people in Jesus' presence. They'll figure it out. They'll see. They'll see what I see. And so he does this with his brother. And in verses 41 and 42, we read this. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Then when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, before we talk a little bit more about this passage, I want you to see there's a common theme that we're going to see throughout the rest of chapter one. And it's this, an interaction with Jesus produces a declaration about Jesus. When you interact with him in this passage, they are going to declare something about him. What's Andrew declaring? We found the Messiah. We, we have found the Messiah. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And, and who does he find first? He finds his brother Simon, right? We know him best as Peter, but his official name, his given name is Simon. And we're going to see that Peter is simply uh, a nickname. And so this is interesting. Before he finds his parents, before he finds any of his friends, he goes right to his brother. Now, we don't know if this was his only brother, but obviously they were close. And he goes straight to Simon he says, we found the Messiah. And then we, we have one of those editorial comments that John puts into his, his book, which is translated the Christ. He's clearing that up for his Gentile readers. He's trying to put it in their mind. Who exactly is he talking about here? And when he says, we found the Messiah, this is a loaded word in the scriptures. Now, most of us, when we hear the word Messiah, we just think Jesus. And and, and rightly so. He's the identification. He is the Messiah, right? That's his identity. But when we see the word Messiah, in the Hebrew, it's Hamashiach, and then in the Greek, it's Christos, okay, which is where we get Christ. So we're talking about the same person. This is why John defines it this way, but it's absolutely loaded because when you try to start walking your way through the Old Testament to figure out who this Messiah would be, we learn a lot of things about this Messiah. First thing we learn is the Messiah is the promise delivered from Genesis 3.15. Make no mistake, I think Josh said it earlier, Jesus Christ doesn't just show up on the scene in Matthew out of nowhere. No, God's been pointing to him since Genesis 3.15. We also learn in Revelation, he was the Lamb of God who was slain when? 0 AD, 33 AD? No, slain before when? The foundation of the world. This means that God the Father and his omniscience and all-knowing knew that Jesus Christ would be the solution for man's sin. Jesus Christ would be the solution for the penalty of man's sin. Jesus Christ would be the solution for man's righteousness issue. Jesus Christ is the man. He's the solution. He's God's solution. And he wants to convince each one of us that he alone is the solution for any problem that you will face. And he's done it all the way back from the beginning. Genesis 3.15 and I will put enmity between you and the woman, God pronouncing this to the serpent, Satan in the serpent. 
between your seed and her seed. We see the virgin birth right there in that phrase, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. It's her seed. It's not Adam and Eve's seed. It's her seed. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Just like if you were to step on a poisonous snake, he might bite your heel, but that heel is going to go into his skull and crush him. And that's exactly the imagery that we have here in Genesis 3.15. We also know that Messiah is the prophet who would come in like manner as Moses speaking face to face with God. He would be unique in that way. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago because this is what the religious leaders were doing. They were working through all of these identifications of John. Are you the Christ? No. Are you the prophet? No. Right? The prophet, they, they oftentimes thought that was different than the Messiah. But the scriptures are pretty clear. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 through 19. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren. In other words, he would be Jewish. And I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And we're not there yet, but as we get further in John, we're going to see Jesus say exactly this, that he doesn't speak any words unless the Father tells him to speak it. He doesn't do any works unless the Father tells him to do it. That means that your Savior, although fully God and fully man, Live life in the way that you and I are designed to live. That's in complete dependence on somebody else's resources, just like we're designed to live. That's how Jesus lived his daily life. In fact, as we get further in chapter one, we're going to see Jesus exercise his omniscience. But knowing what we know and knowing where we're going, we know that he did so because the father wanted him to do so. That's how he lived his life, moment by moment, day by day, relying upon the resources of the Father. And how are you to live the Christian life? Moment by moment, day by day, upon the resources of Jesus Christ. This is, this is how this all comes together. And so we see that Jesus, the Messiah, was to be the prophet. The Messiah, it, now go figure this one out for me. This is just a crazy, cool description. In, in, in Isaiah 11, the Messiah is the root and the stem of Jesse, which is David's lineage, indicating that he's fully God and fully man. How can you be the root and also a branch growing out of the tree? How can you be both at the same time? Well, guess what? There's only one person that description fits. It's the Messiah. And we see this in Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Whose roots? Jesse's roots. He, he's a branch that will grow out of Jesse's roots. And did Jesus Christ come from the lineage of David and Jesse? He did. He, he was born on a day in history. He came out of the roots of Jesse. But skipping down to verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Wait a minute. I thought he was a branch. No, he's both. He, that's the answer to that question. Was he a branch or a, or a root? The answer is yes. Not not and or, not or, and. He was both. He's a root of Jesse who shall what? Stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. The Messiah also, and this is what we know most about the Messiah. He was to be a substitutionary suffering servant who would bear the sin of the world even though he did not deserve to die. Triple S there, that's, that's kind of some alliteration right there. But that, that's designed to keep us remembered. Suffering 
substitutionary servant. What does that mean? Him for you. Your sins on him, he dies for you. He bore your iniquities. We're going to see that. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was wounded for who? Our transgressions. He was bruised for who? Our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon who? Him. And by his stripes, who's healed? We are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see the substitutionary aspect of this suffering servant? Now, one more thing I want to look at, and I'm just showing you, I just want to show that this word Messiah is loaded. When he says, when Andrew says to Peter, we found the Messiah, he's saying a lot here. He's saying a lot. The Messiah is also the rightful Davidic king of all the kingdoms of the world. And one day he will receive the worship that he alone deserves. Do you know that one day that God has highly exalted Jesus, that he's given him a name above every name, and you know one day everyone will finally recognize it. Don't you look forward to that day when your hero gets his just due from everyone? Now, I don't hold it against people that talk bad about Jesus, but it hurts me because he's my hero. I want to see him spoken well of. I want people to enjoy him. I want people to see how great he is. One day, he's going to get that. That's what Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says. And then notice what Revelation eleven fifteen says. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This is, Jesus is Christ because he is God the Father's stamp of approval. He is the man because God the Father says he's the man. He is the one to whom all of scriptures were pointing to, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, one of the things that we've got to understand, and we'll bring this out multiple times in the study of the book of John, it was the last two bullet points that the Jews had trouble reconciling in their day. They still have trouble reconciling this because the scriptures are clear. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, the Messiah will be cut off. Uh, Isaiah 53, he he will die for the sins of others. He will bear those sins. But then you have the Davidic covenant. He will reign forever. He will have a kingdom that never ends. How could this be? How could you have a suffering servant and a reigning Davidic king? How can these two things go together? And I think the one thing that they're missing, and it's the central tenet of Christianity, is the resurrection. They're missing the resurrection. That's how that happens. In fact, the resurrection is found in Isaiah 53. It says, he shall see his offspring. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought he just died. Yeah, He's going to raise again. He's going to see those in the land of the living. And this is what they missed. And so when when Andrew says, we found the Messiah, it is a very bold proclamation. I wonder where he got it from. Probably the one who was discipling him, John the Baptist. I'm sure he had a lot to say about Jesus Christ that we don't even have recorded. But now he's also had firsthand experience with Jesus Christ. And so he's convinced. And so what does he do? He brings his brother to him. 
to, brought, to, to bring, or to, uh, this word brought means to lead along, to bring, to carry, or to remove. So Andrew physically directed, he, if you might say, he insisted that Peter come with him to meet Jesus. He was insistent. He was persistent. You know, there, there, there are people like that in your life. I remember even growing up with my brother, he would, he would want me to watch a movie with him. And I had no interest in watching this movie with him. But about the 10th, the 20th, the 30th time he brought it up, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Get him off my back, right? I'm just going to watch this movie. Most of the time he was right. I enjoyed the movie. I kind of gave him a hard time about that. But he introduced me to a lot of good movies. But here's, here's Andrew. And, and, and the picture I get from here brought him to Jesus with the way the word is he wasn't going to take no for an answer. Peter, you, you got to come, man. You, you got to see this guy. You got to trust me. Simon, you've got to trust me. And so he was insistent. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, some of you have a different Bible translation there, and there's a textual variant. Some of your versions say the Simon, the son of John. Some of your versions say Simon, the son of Jonah. Without getting into the detail of the textual variant, I would just say jot down Matthew 16, 17, which does not have any dispute on what's there. And you're going to see that Simon's dad was named Jonah. Okay, so we'll just go with that. Simon's son, Jonah, kind of interesting. Their dad's name is Jonah. We just did a study on Jonah. He was the reluctant prophet that went the wrong way. And now uh, Jonah's sons are going to become apostles or disciples of Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting. It's not the same Jonah, obviously. Uh, but that namesake is just kind of interesting. Now, Jesus here is going to give Simon a nickname. It's not his official name. Now, he's going to go by Peter most of the rest of his life. But the reason he is is because Jesus gave him this nickname. And you often hear this. You know, you'll hear this like with basketball stars and NFL stars. And everyone just calls them by their nickname. They're like, where did that nickname come from? And they're usually really funny stories. Like they... You know, like, anyways, I, I could go on and on about that. But they're usually really funny, interesting stories. But now they simply go by their nickname. This is going to be this case for this man called Simon. What's really fascinating about it is, um, and we don't really pick this up in our translation, but Cephas is an Aramaic word meaning rock. And then the Greek form of this Aramaic word is the word Petros, which was where we get Peter, meaning stone. And what's really fascinating is when you go back up into this verse right here, uh, in verse 42, when he says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. It, that's actually the word that's used there for stone. It's Peter or Cephas. And this is why you'll oftentimes, even in the gospel, sometimes Paul will refer to Simon as Cephas, okay? Cephas and Peter were just synonyms. They're just different languages, same nickname. And that's what makes Jesus' declaration in Matthew 16, kind of getting off track here just a second. But Matthew 16, 18, he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, the, you know, unfortunately, the, the Catholic church has taken that and misinterpreted it. They said it's going to be built on, the church is going to be built on Peter. But it doesn't allow for that because Peter says, you, or Jesus says, you are Peter, Petros, a small stone, and upon this rock, Petra, singular, massive cliff, massive boulder. Upon this massive boulder, I will build my church. You go back to the context, what's he going to build a church on? It's Peter's declaration that he's the Christ, 
That's the massive boulder that he's going to build the church on. And so you, you see this, and, and what's interesting is, is Peter takes this nickname, and he just keeps utilizing it in his life. You go to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and following, he's going to talk about stones and living stones. And this imagery really just kind of stuck with him, I think, throughout his life. Now, what's really fascinating, just because we've seen Peter's reaction in so many other places in the Gospels, I think it would have been fun to see Peter's reaction here. I think it would have been fun to see how Peter responds here. We don't get it, though. John just keeps moving the narrative forward. Simon's met Jesus now, and now we're going to meet Philip. And so in verses 43 through 44, we're introduced to a man named Philip. The following day, again, same week, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, remember Jesus, if we trace back where Jesus has been, in verse 28 of chapter 1, he was in a place called Betharbera which was beyond the Jordan. Again, that was something that uh, archaeologists, they, they've never really been able to identify that city, but what they think it is, is they think it's this Bethany east of the Jordan right here. And so Jesus is now heading up to the, toward the region of Galilee. Now, you know, it's one of those things when you look at that on a map, you think, oh, that's a straight shot. But if we did a topographical, uh, topographical map there, you would see these are all mountains. This is a mountainous Walk. And so that walk right there to the area of Galilee would have been a 26 to 28 hour walk. Okay, so it would have taken multiple days to get there. And so on his way there, he bumps into Philip. And Philip is actually from this area up here, Bethsaida, which is also where Peter and Andrew grew up. So he's up in that area of Galilee. By the way, notice where Jesus grew up, Nazareth. So not, not too far, kind of the same region up there in the area of Galilee. Now, the thing that he tells Philip is interesting. He hasn't said this before to any of the disciples. He didn't even say it to Simon here, but he's going to tell Philip, follow me. What did he tell to the other disciples earlier when they said, hey, where are you staying? He just said, come and see, right? He just said, hey, come and see. But here he's actually going to tell him to follow him. And this word follow means to attend, to accompany, to go or, or with or follow a teacher in this case. And I think it's very important to understand, and I'm going to continue to develop this point here in the next couple of points. But I think it's very important to understand that when he said follow him, this was a physical following. In other words, follow me geographically. I'm walking this way, walk with me, walk behind me, come with me. It's kind of the idea initially, but with a future personal implication of buying into what he's teaching spiritually, okay? But they're not the same. Follow me so that you can hear more, so that you might believe what I teach. You see, follow is, is, is the initial command. And I think Jesus is convinced if this man will follow him, he'll be convinced that he's worthy of following. He's going to see that over time. But the reason I say this is because to follow, it speaks of a physical decision to physically follow Jesus in a geographical proximity. Now, some may be like, why is he making such a big deal about this? This makes, I mean, this is such a dumb thing to make a big deal about. But it's really not when you, when you hear the teaching that's going on in our day. Because the word follow and believe, which is a key word in the book of John, right, used a hundred times. They're not synonymous. 
follow and believing are not synonymous. That's what we're trying to get out of this verse right here is to understand that when you look etymologically, that means the meaning of words, these two words are not ever even close to being synonymous. They can be related in some ways, but they're not the same thing. Saying to follow Jesus is not the same thing uh, as saying trust in him for eternal life, okay? And, and one of the things that I, would, uh, that I would say is that to see, follow, and believe as the same thing or synonymous is to read a theological bias into the text. Now, we're all guilty of potentially doing that. So we want to be careful. We want to be too critical. But we do want to observe when someone's driving their theology in the text. There is no uh, thesaurus on earth that would put following and believe in the same list of words. They're not synonymous. They're not the same thing. In fact, to believe means what? To be persuaded that something is true to the extent that you rely upon it or trust in it. That's what believe means. To follow simply means you pick up your feet and you go the same direction, the same place, the same speed as someone else is going. Those are not the same thing. We have to understand, Philip may have believed at this point. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us that he did, but we know that he follows Jesus. Now, many people will say, well, then he got saved. He was following Jesus. We don't know for sure because you don't get saved by following Jesus. We, we've got to understand that, that nobody gets saved by following Jesus. You want proof? Judas Iscariot followed him for three years. People say, you got to be a disciple to be saved. Proof that that's not true? Judas Iscariot was a disciple. In fact, what's a disciple? It's a follower. That's all it is. So Judas was a follower. Judas was a disciple, but he was never saved. He never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Where do I get that from? Well, let me just jot down, because this isn't really the main point here, but it's just kind of a sub-point. John 13, 10 through 11, while Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, he says, you are all clean except one of you. <laughs> in other words, you're all saved except for one of you. And then it, John identifies for us who he's talking about. It's the one who betrayed him. Judas isn't saved. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 12 says, I've kept all the ones you've given me except for the son of perdition. He's lost. He's talking about Judas. Why? That the scriptures might be fulfilled. So the point is this, you know, what's the desired result, by the way, of someone who trusts in Christ for salvation? Somebody who's born into the family of God, what's the desired result? That they would become a follower but we have people today using terminology, well, I became a Jesus follower, and we just want to be Jesus followers. And this person became a Jesus follower. And this person, Jesus follower this, Jesus follower that. And they're confusing the means of salvation with the desired result of salvation. And that's why if your salvation is based on your ability to follow Jesus, how saved do you feel today? Get out your spiritual thermometer Man, I woke up, I had my morning Devo, I drank coffee while I had my morning Devo. Coffee's kind of spiritual. I'm feeling pretty good about my salvation today. I'm following Jesus. But then you get out in the car and you start heading to work. And all of a sudden, following Jesus becomes a little bit more challenging than when you're in your incubation tube with background music going on, perfect lighting going on, the cats are asleep, the dog's out, everything's quiet, and you're good. 
and man, I'm following Jesus. Then I hit the world, and it's a little bit harder to follow Jesus. Imagine if your salvation was based on your ability to follow Jesus. Let me tell you what would happen. Heaven would be a very lonely place. The Trinity would be there and nobody else. You don't get saved by following Jesus. This is not what he's talking about here. He's saying, come pick up your feet and walk with me in hopes that you'll listen to the message and trust in me. That's the goal here for Andrew. Now, hopefully someone who believes or relies upon Jesus for salvation will also begin to follow him. That's the whole goal. We're designed to make disciples. That's what we want. Point them the way to the way, get out of the way, let people follow Jesus, exalt him so much in their thinking that they say, I can't live life without trusting this man. That's what we want to do. But it doesn't mean that you're saved. It has nothing to do with salvation in this context. Again, trusting in Jesus Christ is what gets a person declared righteous before God. And then following him, sanctification works out that righteousness practically in life. And that varies. And if we don't keep those two things distinct, we're going to be super confused. And so Philip, we, we gather from this, is that he began to follow Jesus. He was from Bethsaida, the same city of Andrew and Peter. Uh, again, he was apparently away from home when Jesus said to follow him. They, they probably walked toward Galilee together. We know that Philip was a Jew, but interestingly, his name, his, his name is Greek, meaning a lover of horses. Now, I don't know where that fits with his life, but it, that's what his name means. And it seems like he was close to Andrew and Peter, probably knew them growing up, or at least they were from the same hometown. And then we're going to see Philip does the same thing that Andrew did. He begins to introduce people to Jesus Christ. Now, history tells us that Philip's ministry was also in southern Russia, maybe with Andrew, maybe they teamed up in that area, but also in France. He was also martyred, lost his life for the gospel, but he was martyred in Hierapolis. Interesting fact, he was tied to a cross, but then he was stoned to death while on the cross. He wasn't crucified, but he was stoned to death while on a cross. And so here we go. This is Bethsaida. There's Nazareth. So it just kind of shows the general region that they're heading up to. We're going to get into chapter 2 next time, and, and, and Jesus is going to attend a wedding in Cana. This is probably why he's going up to Galilee, and we're going to see his first miracle uh, next week in, in chapter 2. But now we're going to see Philip and his witness to Nathaniel. Let's jump down, uh, keep going here in verse 45 of chapter 1. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. That's kind of a comical response. We'll kind of look at that. It's just kind of a funny thing to say. But notice that here's this interaction now with Philip. And what does this interaction produce? It produces a declaration about Jesus. Notice, this is what we're seeing through this passage. Interact with Jesus, declare something about Jesus. And this is, we're going to see Philip doing that here. In fact, his brief interaction was life-changing. And Philip immediately locates this guy named Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is also mentioned in other gospel accounts as Bartholomew. It's the same, same man, okay? So Nathaniel uh, is mentioned as Nathaniel here, most likely a friend of his. And notice what he says to him. This is, I think this is interesting, what he says. He says, we found him. And he goes on to describe who he's talking about. 
but we found him. And what I think it shows us is that there was this expectation of Messiah that both of these men had. They, were, they might have been disciples of John the Baptist. He might have even, although we don't have it recorded here, he might have shared John's testimony about Jesus. But there was, you, you can see it's like, if I went up to somebody and I just said, hey, bro, we found him. The implication is you've been talking about him <laughs> a little bit, right? You've got this expectation that you're looking for somebody. And obviously, Nathaniel knew who he was talking about. And this is why when we look at Nathaniel's uh, comment in that context, and we're going to see how he comes to Jesus later, it doesn't take much to convince him that Jesus is him, is the Messiah. But when we talk about who's him, well, he says we found him. It's a perfect tense. Point in time in the past, we found him. We continue to know who he is. And the question is, who's the him? Well, he identifies him. This is the one Moses spoke of uh, in, in the law. It's also the one that the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of. And Philip is speaking of having found the Messiah. Now, we won't jump. Actually, you know what? We will jump to one verse, Luke 24, 27. This is uh, at the end of Jesus' life after his resurrection. He appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he says this in verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what that tells us or should tell us? That if the only thing we had in our possession was an Old Testament, that's enough to share Jesus Christ with somebody. That's enough to point somebody to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished. It's all there in Moses and the prophets. That's the representation of the entire Old Testament. And this is what Philip declares to Nathaniel. Again, this is a declaration. We found the Messiah. It's just using different words than Andrew used with Simon earlier. And not only that, he had found the Messiah, but guess what? He grew up down the road from us in Nazareth. And that's kind of what he's saying because they're from the same region. He said he had his human ancestry and birth, and he was from uh, Nazareth. Now, his response is kind of funny. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, it's like, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to dog out Heard County, you know, publicly, but you know, it's like, I, I hear that sometimes and I like, like, what's the deal? Like I'll hear that from locals or yes, that man, that's over in Heard County. You know, I'm like, what does that mean? Like, it's a, it's definitely a pejorative, you know, that, that people have sort towards certain counties around here. Well, Nazareth was kind of that way. It was just like a small, no name village in nowheresville, Israel right? This was Nazareth. But there's also some other thing uh, that we can learn from this because it was a very common sentiment in the days of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, I'm just going to jump ahead to John 7 here. Others said, uh, this is verses 41 through 42, others says this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? That, that region up there, Nazareth? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David? And from the town of Bethlehem where David was. Now, what had they missed there? They had missed a real subtle, important observation with that prophecy. He would be born in the city of David. Not that he would grow up there. They, so they had missed that. But, but Galilee wasn't mentioned. Then we jump down to verse 52 of John 7. It says, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And part of the reason for that is this. Nothing and the Messiah's origins was ever tied to Nazareth in the Old Testament. In fact, you will search high and low in the Old Testament for the mention of Nazareth. It's not even mentioned. So this is, this is again, this is kind of what 
Nathaniel's wrestling through, wait a minute, he's from Nazareth? How, kind of how does that work? You know, I, I, don't, I don't remember him being, you know, and there, he's thinking through his mind through the Old Testament. He's not just being kind of a, you know, a, a jerk, a cultural jerk, like, oh, Nazareth, you know. I mean, he's kind of he's got some Old Testament that's running through his mind. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can a prophet come out of there? Now, I, I love Philip's response. We could all take a lesson from Philip. He, he doesn't try to argue with him. He doesn't try to convince him of the truth further. He doesn't try to beat him over the head with all these other things. He says, you know what, bro? Just come and see. <laughs> Just come and hang out with him, and, and you'll be convinced. And, you know, I, I think that simplifies the message for us. If we can just get people to see Jesus Christ, we've done our job. He can handle the rest. He's that impressive. He is that impressive. And so Philip was convinced of this. And so we finally see that Nathanael uh, meets Jesus in verses 47 through 48. We read that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, okay? And so again, we see that Jesus uses part of his omniscience here uh, because he sees him when he's out of sight, basically, and he tells him exactly where he was. And so we're going to see that this comment, uh, along with that second comment that he makes, that Jesus not only knew where Nathaniel was when Philip called him, but he knew what he was thinking about, and he already knew something of his character and personality. He'd never met him before. He'd never seen this man before, but he knew everything about him. We're going to read that in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Come meet a man that told me everything there is to know about me. Like, this is what Jesus can do because Jesus is God. And so he does it here with Nathaniel, and it absolutely blows his mind. That to describe Nathaniel here as someone in whom is no deceit, he was simply saying that he did not live a, a fraudulent or deceptive life. And this is an insightful and accurate description given by Jesus. He wasn't, he didn't just like make this up. This was who Nathaniel was. This would have been verified by others that knew Nathaniel. And, and I just, and I say this too, you know, Jesus is using his omniscience here, but this is unique. You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, Jesus was God. He did whatever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. And actually he didn't. Do we understand that about Jesus and his life? That although he had the capabilities, he never ceased being God. Philippians 2 does a great job of describing that when he took on humanity, that he willingly and voluntarily laid aside his claim to independent and rightful use of his divine attributes anytime he wanted to. And instead, he chose a life of full dependence upon God the Father every moment of every day, even in the use of his divine attributes. So although that's, that's a mouthful here, we can know that behind the scenes, God the Father wanted Jesus to use his omniscience here to again convince Nathaniel of his identity. And we'll see that that's why he does it, is to convince Nathaniel of his identity. In fact, Nathaniel, he says, wait a minute, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And with this comment, Jesus absolutely blows his mind. He was not in view. How could Jesus have known this? No one had told him. He wasn't even in the vicinity and he was under a fig tree of all things. Not like, 
oh, I saw, you know, that's how these generic prophets of God, and I say that tongue in cheek today, that's how they prophesy, oh, I saw you, you're going through a tunnel, and there's a bright light, and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't like Jesus just said, oh, yeah, you're over in Bethsaida. Oh, yeah, you were in Noonan. It'd be like saying, no, you were in Ashley Park, you were sitting on the bench just outside of PETA. What? <laughs> how does he know this? How, do you know me? And, and he blows his mind when he says, you're under the fig tree. This is all Nathaniel needs, by the way. Doesn't take much. He's pumped. He's excited. And guess what? Just like the others, when he has an interaction with Jesus, what does he do? He declares something. And let's look at what Nathaniel declares. It's pretty big, actually. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And, and Jesus is going to be slightly amused by this response. He's like, is that all it took? <laughs> Man, you're going to see tons more coming forward. But this is, this convinced Nathaniel, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And these are big, bold declarations. And again, it, I think it gives us indication that Nathaniel was expecting the Messiah. He was anticipating the Messiah. That when Philip shared with him, he believed Philip's testimony. He just needed to see it for himself. He believed what John the Baptist had said. He just needed to see it for himself. And the second Jesus does something that's out of the ordinary, unique to the Messiah, he's like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. I love this guy too. I think he's the, he's the one. And so he declares two things. He gives his divine ID. You are the son of God. Again, he declares that he's a unique son of God. Huios means unique, uh, one who has an inheritance, a special son, if you will. And this was equivalent to saying that Jesus was of divine origin. He was impressed with his omniscience. He said, that's, that's an attribute of God right there. And so he's impressed. The second thing he gives is the human ID. You are the king of Israel. And so now he declares and he ties this, this role of Messiah into the Davidic covenant, where he would reign on the Davidic covenant forever. And oh, by the way, this, you are the son of God. He's simply repeating what John the Baptist said about Jesus back in verse 34. So somehow this, this testimony is getting trickled down to these men. By the way, this is very similar to what Paul does in Romans 1, 2 through 4, when he called Jesus Christ, what? Born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And so he, he ties these two things. Son of God, King of Israel, King of David, right? This Davidic covenant, those are tied together. And this is why oftentimes in the book of Acts, you're gonna hear Paul say, and I preached to them the gospel of grace and I explained to them regarding the kingdom of God and I did not withhold the whole counsel of the word of God. Why? Because many minds in the day said, how can you have a suffering servant and a reigning king? How does that work? Well, he explained it to him. He explained how that was going to happen through resurrection. And so what Jesus Christ, this is what we want to take away with it. Who Jesus Christ is and what he's all about is unique, is unique amongst anyone else who's ever walked the face of the earth. And I love Jesus's response here because he's going to say, look, man, if that impressed you, basically put on your seatbelt. It's about to get wild up in here in the next three years. And it's exciting. He's like, there's much more that's going to be coming. In fact, it's going to get even better. Verses 50 through 51, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Again, I think he was amused that all it took was just telling him where he was before he saw him. And he said, I'm, I'm in. You're the Son of God. You're the, the King of Israel. And he says, you're going to see greater things than these. Now, we don't actually get Nathaniel's response. I would put money that he was pretty excited, though. I bet he was just off the charts, pumped up about what he was going to see. And it was as if Jesus saying, man, you ain't seen nothing yet, my man. <laughs> just hang with me. You're going to see a lot more than what you just saw. In fact, I, these, these disciples that we're reading about and others, they were about to have a front row seat to the most exciting three years in human history up until this point in time. Most exciting front row seat. But don't be jealous because if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are also gonna have a front row seat to an event that's gonna top these three years. And that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the, the climax of all history. You can find yourself, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, in Revelation 19, riding a horse. Now you say, man, I've never ridden a horse. They always buck me off. Not the horses in heaven. You're gonna be a great rider. You're gonna have a front row witnessing seat when Jesus Christ puts his feet on this earth and takes over. And that's gonna be a great day. We're gonna have that front row seat. So that's very exciting. And then we got something in between there, lest I forget to mention the rapture. <laughs> that's gonna be a pretty exciting day in human history. But we're not gonna be on earth much for that. We're, we're heading up. We're heading up in the clouds to be with Jesus and to remain with Jesus in the air so that we can come back on this exciting day in human history. Now, Jesus says something interesting here. Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, this would definitely fall into the category of greater things than these. That's, that's definitely there. Uh, but the question is, and there's a lot of speculation, why does Jesus bring this up here? Now, some commentators are very convinced that when Nathaniel was under the fig tree, that he was thinking about the story in the Old Testament with Jacob's ladder. You'll hear that a lot in commentaries. So they'll, they'll just tell you, yeah, this is what he was doing. I, me, per, and that could be true. I mean, that's a fun interpretation to preach, but um, I just don't see it in the text myself. It's definitely possible that he was thinking about that, but we don't really get that indication in the text from my perspective. Um, but I do think it's potentially a reference to that dream because that's a very unique dream where Jacob dreams. Uh, if you could go back and find that in Genesis 28 of a ladder, angels going up and down that ladder. So it does make sense that maybe Jesus is referencing that, showing that there's gonna be a unique um, ministry that he's going to have. He himself is going to be that ladder that the angels are descending up and down on. That's just kind of uniqueness. So I think it's definitely potentially a reference to that dream. I don't know if Nathaniel was thinking about it. That's what commentators will say. Oh, Nathaniel was thinking about this and Jesus predicted what he was thinking. I, I'm not sure I would go that far. But here's what I would like to emphasize here. And I think this is very important. Let's go back to verse 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, when people see that title, Son of Man, you'll hear people talk about that a lot. And they'll say, well, Jesus is just referring to his humanity there. Son of God, deity, Son of Man, humanity. 
I don't agree with that at all because I think it's an Old Testament reference to Daniel chapter 7. Let me bring up the passage. <coughs> Excuse me. I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He, now notice all the, the, the pronouns referring to the Son of Man here. He, the Son of Man, came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And they brought him, the Son of Man, near before him, God the Father. Then to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Son of Man. The Son of Man's dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And the Son of Man's kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. You know that Jesus refers to himself over 80 times by this title in the Gospels. I think he's driving people's mind back to the Old Testament to say, I am the son of man. In fact, what gets him in, in hot water with the, le uh, the religious leaders at his trials? They say, are you the Christ? And he says, you're gonna see the son of man coming in clouds with great glory. He's referring to this passage right here. And they're like, what further need do we have for blasphemy? We've heard it with our own ears. He, they know what he was claiming here. And so he's using this as a title. And if this is the case, if he's saying that you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, he was substituting himself in the place of the ladder in Jacob's dream. And thus, if he's doing that, he's describing himself here as the bridge, the only bridge between mankind and God. He's the one and only mediator. And that's why 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God and two mediators, a mediator and a mediatrix. No, one mediator. That's what 1 Timothy 2.5 says. Between God and men, who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. That's who our mediator is. And even if that's not what Jesus is talking about, this principle is true. He is the only way. He is the only truth, and he's the only life. He's the only way to God between man and God. He's the only way there. So to conclude this morning, I want to use really the words of Jesus as an encouragement. You know, if you've enjoyed the study of John so far, I mean, we're only through chapter one. <laughs> Greater things are coming. Uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, we got some fun ahead of us in studying the life of this man. It's about to get super exciting. And as I close here, let me just mention something. Next week, we're going to get into the first miracle of Jesus. Josh is going to create a QR code that will go in your sermon notebooks. We're going to put that in a chart for your ability to get it. We're going to put it on Facebook. We're going to put it on our website, but you can scan it, get those charts, and then every chart we add to the book of John, you'll be able to find that QR code going forward. So those will be ready for you next week. You can slap those in your sermon notebooks, and then we're going to put that chart out this week on Facebook for you too if you want to just print it in hard copy form. Let's close right there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus, um, just the, the excitement that we get to kind of experience through the disciples' first interaction with him. Um, we're grateful for the book of John. We're grateful that he took the time to, to sit down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and to pen these words so that we can enjoy them as well. And Lord, as we leave here today, my prayer for each one uh, in the room or listening to this message would um, just have a higher evaluation of Jesus Christ than they did an hour ago. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.